Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. We welcome back Caroline Ma for the first in our series on lighthouse art, the ways in which lighthouses have inspired people to write poems, author one of many books and create art. Welcome Caro. Did you know you've been highly recommended to cover this part with me? Well, that would be a perfect gig for Caro probably, but oh yeah, she loves art. I also did an arts degree, so technically I'm qualified to talk about it, but (laughs) she has the passion, you know. Yeah, you've got the degree, she's got the passion. I would say that I have no official qualification or any sort of actual evidence or anything behind what I think but I really enjoy art and I find it very interesting and I've spent a lot of spare time looking into art and I really enjoy galleries as an experience I'm just going to say that at the top I'm an amateur in every respect of the word you're a grade a art frother I think based on what uh, Max has said I guess in this episode Mm. lighthouses have served as inspiration positive inspiration for for many people, uh, both artistically, politically, symbolically. I've got a bit of an inspirational quote quiz for you, Karen. Oh, golly, yeah. A a who said this kind Mm -hmm. of game. I will be mind blown if you can guess any of these or even be within the vicinity of any of these, but we'll give it a go. Who said this? Lighthouses are more helpful than churches? I love that. Um, I'm feeling like some sort of political figure. I don't know why. Yeah, um, I don't know, maybe like Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) I could love if Margaret Thatcher said this, but you were very close. Benjamin Franklin. Oh, right. Yeah, cool. Great. Who said this? I can think of no other edifice constructed by man as altruistic as a lighthouse. They were built only to serve. That is an excellent quote. I really like that quote. Um, ooh, it's quite, it, it feels quite academic to me. So um, I, I'm, I'm coming blank. Help me out here, man. George Bernard Shaw. Great. I'm not even really familiar with George George. Bernard Shaw, so I don't think I would have ever gotten that, but I really like that quote. So George Bernard Shaw was a uh, Irish playwright. Cool. Lovely. And political activist, so there you go. All right, who said this? Anything for a quiet life, as the man said when he took the situation at the lighthouse. Feels poetic on on the theme. I think maybe like (laughs) T.S. Eliot. (laughs) Oh, you are so close. You are so close. It's Charles Dickens. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Actually, Tess Elliott is American, isn't he? I think that maybe it's not as my lighthouses are maybe not as influential. But also, I don't know. I don't know anything about lighthouses. So you're doing well. Yeah. You're doing well. I love the rough vibe of the inspiration for these quotes. Okay. Final one. Who said this? Metaphysics is a dark ocean without shores or lighthouses, strewn with many a philosophic wreck. Again, very poetic. So. Oh. <laughs> keep thinking like Isaac Newton but I know that's not right because that's just (laughs) that's more gravity (laughs) than science um is there a scientist what's the what's the vibe it is Immanuel Kant oh lovely 
So Immanuel Kant, German philosopher and one of right. the central Enlightenment thinkers. Yes, I'm familiar with him because of The Good Place. Have you seen The Good Place? I have not seen The Good Place. What is the reference to him in The Good Place? It's, it's quoted quite a lot in Kant because it's a lot about there's a lot of uh, philosophy and mor- morality. I think he's done a lot of work in morality and ethics. That's probably why, you know, lighthouses, very useful. Dark light, right, wrong. Where are we going? Yeah. Some heavy hitters there talking about lighthouses. That's great. It just, yeah, it's just so, such a, it's just this building and thing in life that just is so inspirational and so applicable to so many different horizons. And as you've mm-hmm. rightly guessed and foreshadowed, Karen, this episode is all about poems and mm-hmm. how lighthouses have inspired poems. So in honour of today's episode, we do begin with a poem. Now, I'm not sure if you remember, but way back, Stuart Buchanan from our Harrowing Tales, part four, mentioned his friend had written a poem about Busted Head Lighthouse. Here it is. A bit of an introduction to this poem. It's called The Ghost of Busted Head. So in the Busted Head Lighthouse ground floor, there's a skeleton wearing a red beanie sitting in a captain's chair beside a desk. This is meant to depict Superintendent Thomas Rooksby, who served at Busted Head from 1868 to 1902. So just think, skeleton in the middle of the lighthouse. They don't know how he got here, what his story was for sure, but they say they'd often see him tending lights upon the shore. The man was small in stature with a beanie on his head, but no one ever spoke with him. It seemed that he was dead. We are guessing at his story, and for sure we'll never know. But we think that he had perished in a shipwreck long ago on the outer rocks off Busted. His spirit made it to the shore, so he spent time helping others way back in days of yore. The ghost of Busted Head was real, a lightkeeper it would seem. Auxiliary lights he kept a-blazing, filled up with kerosene. He knew they were important for others, those bright lights, correctly placed atop the headland, would help save many lives. So he made it his ambition to fill the lights each day until the government came along and took those lights away. The main light became automatic. No need for light keepers now. With them gone, the buildings were wrecked. Well done, government. Take a bow. Then along came some special saviours to restore this heritage site toiling dawn to dusk for many years until everything was just right. One day they made a strange discovery. These bones and beanie they found, and they wondered just how this came to be. Imagination knows no bounds. Perhaps our ghost kept watch in the moonlight, sitting there in the old captain's chair, and I'm sure you will think of him fondly when you know he is really not there. This poem was written by... Margie or Margie on the 14th of February 2019, a friend of Stuart Buchanan. And if we recall back to part four and about the history of Busted Head, I think this poem captures not only Busted Head's history as the lighthouse of tragedy, how terrible things happen there. There's probably ghosts floating around, but just captures the history of lighthouses generally about their automation and the impact it had, as well as the romanticism of their beginning. As we go through this podcast and listening to these people, it's it seems like a lot of the intrigue 
as a, aside from the life that you can live by being a keeper, there's so many stories and there's so much history and there's so much, I guess, for lack of a better word, soul connected to these lighthouse experiences. It's amazing, I guess, that people have been able to capture what it was like back then not only in their stories and books, but I guess the poems that we're hearing is, you know, a way of keeping them alive. So in today's episode, we hear from Mike Pitcher. Well, my name is Michael Pitcher, and uh, I was an AB, able seaman on the Cape ships from 1983 till 1993. He served on the Cape ships from 1980 to 1993. He was inspired by his time at Lighthouses to write a few poems. Let's take a listen to this. And what inspired you to write all of your poems? I think you mentioned you'd written upwards of 30. Um, Yes, I wrote quite a few poems whilst I was uh, employed on the Cape Ships and uh, Probably, uh, I, I never wrote poetry before, and I've written very little since. Um, and I think it was probably the, um, the environment, the work uh, that we were involved in. We, we had good crews. We, had, we, we, we all got along well together. Um, we all very much appreciated uh, the work that we were doing. And uh, I, I think uh, some of the happenings that uh, occurred on board uh, gave rise to me sitting down and writing one day and, well, it just happened. It was as simple as that, really. And your poems have been featured, you know, elsewhere on other public uh, forums. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. In the early days, uh, uh, one of my shipmates lived in Newcastle and uh, he used to uh, send them in to... Uh, uh, Ian McNamara, and he read quite several of them on um, on his program on a Sunday morning. And I've had them published in the uh, uh, magazine, the Lighthouse magazine, and uh, several other magazines. They've used them from time to time. On reflection, are your poems almost like a documentation of your time on the Cape ships? Do they tell the story of the crew and the environment, for example? They do. They do. Um, they tell the stories of incidents that happened, um, some of them quite funny, quite amusing. Most of them are amusing because I didn't write about some more serious things. So uh, most of them are um, about uh, things that happened on the ships and, of course, the environment as well as involved because the environment was quite remarkable. We, we, had, we had the opportunity to visit parts of Australia and, and Tasmania, Tasmania, that uh, most people never get a chance to see. And it was uh, quite awe-inspiring, and it certainly inspired me. And, uh, and also all the other fellows on the board as well. We were all very, very um, attracted to what we were what we were seeing and, and involved in around the coastline of Australia. What was the most memorable moment of those scenes, if any of them come to mind? Uh, the most memorable. Wow, that's a difficult question. I don't think I could pick anything out particularly. Um, we were involved in the uh, construction of Hydrographer's Passage, that's the uh, 
deep sea lane leading out of Mackay um, to the sea to allow the big deep sea tankers to um, uh, bolt carriers to take coal. That was quite an interesting feature. But no, I, I can't pick anything particular out. It was lovely. Tasmania was a lovely island. We visited that Tasmania invented, uh, did work down there. And uh, that was spectacular work as well. It was difficult, very difficult to pick out one or two particular things there. Everything was inspiring. I found it that way, yes. Yes, which is probably why I wrote these, why why I wrote poetry, Um, because I was inspired. As I say, I've written very little. I wrote, well, I can't think of anything I wrote beforehand. Um, And I've written very little since. But uh, during that 10 years, I, I wrote quite a lot. All right. Well, I just, I just got a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a. All right. Here we go. In 1911, the Commonwealth of Australia officially accepted responsibility for all the light stations and other deep sea navigational aids around Australia. The First World War interrupted progress, and it wasn't until the late 1920s that three ships dedicated to this work were built in the dockyards at Newcastle in New South Wales. These ships were named the Cape Lewin, the Cape York, and the Cape Otway. They were, they were replaced in the 1960s by three more ships, also built at Newcastle, and named the Cape Don, the Cape Morton, and the Cape Pillar. After 30 years of service to navigational aids, these vessels were replaced in 1993 by just one ship, the Cape Grafton, which was built in Spain and served as a lighthouse tender for just seven years. I joined the service in 1983 as an able seaman and retired from the sea and the workforce in 1993. Those 10 years were some of the most interesting, rewarding, challenging, and pleasurable years of my working life, and no doubt the reason I came to write about them in poetic terms. The Cape Dawn has been retired as a museum piece and is open to the public in Sydney Harbour and well worth a visit. I wrote this particular poem in 1983 when the Cape Schwitz were still hard-worked lighthouse tenders. I called the, I called the poem the Cape Ships. From Torres Strait to the Southern Bight and around Tasmania shores, the Cape Ships beat a steady track with safety as their cause. Our continental coastline, unknown to recent years, has seen its share of tragedy, of loss and bitter tears. For every mile of coral coast, a ship has come to grief and countless souls of sailors haunt those watery wastes beneath. But their skillful navigation, their courage and their drive sowed the seed of this great nation, set goals for all to strive. With use of convict labour, lighthouses soon were built and manned by willing keepers whose hearts would never wilt. In lonely isolation and conditions hard to bear, they kept the lanterns burning each night, each passing year. Today, the Lighthouse Service maintains this high tradition, safety for the sailor, its priority condition. And so the Cape ships beat a course 
in the track of Cook's Endeavour. Only three in number, Cape Don, Cape Morton and Cape Pillar. Our average ships are weather ships, coast surveillance too, construction work and survey, to mention just a few. Their presence on our coast, coastal seas is a record hard to beat, and many a shipwrecked sailor owes his life to the Navade fleet. Their skills and local knowledge learned from a century at sea must not be lost forever by today's technology. The importance of our Cape ships is obviously clear, as the sea extracts her bounty in lives and craft each year. Improve the lighthouse service, expand it if we must, but let not economics cloud our eyes to what comes first. That's it. You still there? That was beautiful, Mark. Oh, such a great way to. Uh... I thought you'd. I thought you'd hung up on me halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy going on about? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll read you one more. I've just, it's just come up. Um, okay. My next voyage was also a three-week trip, joining the Cape Morton at Thursday Island after an overnight stay at Hyde's and Cairns. This time I was on the 12 to 4 watch, and I'll not give an account of the voyage as it was very similar to the last one and is all covered in my diaries. I was by no means the only POM on board. In fact, we had a fair mix of Thursday Islanders, German, Dutch, Lithuanian, Tasmanian, with the majority mainland Australians. But of all the Brits, I was perhaps the most pommy of all. Anyway, I did seem to come in for more than my fair share of pommy baiting. It uh, very seldom bothered me, as in the main, it's all in good fun. But satisfactory retaliation was a problem, since I was pretty much outnumbered. It must have been at the end of one of those pommy hate days when I returned to my cabin, bristling for revenge. That old quote, the pen is mightier than the sword, came to me. So I got my pen out and scribbled and scribbled look and wrote, Dinkum, Dinkum, Aussie. I can well remember laughing away in my cabin as the verses came together. This happened quite a lot when I was writing, and I can honestly say that these stories gave me, personally, a huge amount of pleasure as they appeared on paper before my very eyes. Dinkum, Aussie wiped the smile off their faces, but not for long, I'm quite happy to say. This one I called Primate Australia, or Dinkum Aussie. There's a primate in Australia known to all as Dinkum Aussie. Fair as skin, he walks upright and wears a loincloth called a cosy. He lives in groups he calls his mates, but his origins aren't clear. His eating habits are quite strange. He drinks large quantities of beer. By nature, he's an extrovert and seldom goes unheard, but shy when called upon to work when he seldom says a word. At sport, he's very active, with a language quite profound, such gems as, have a go, your mug, and kick the clown he's lying on the ground. He likes to think he's well in touch, feet firmly on the floor, except when drinking Aussie beer, when he's often on all four. As primates go, he tops the class, 
with one notable exception, a migrant breed of Saxon seed and extraordinary perception. Arriving in large numbers, they gained an upper hand, and slowly Dinkamozzi became a sad, diminished band. In an effort to retaliate, he resorted to abuse, but against a higher intellect, it was of little use. Known colloquially as Scouse, or sometimes Brum or Cockney, our Dinkamozzi dubbed him a bloody Bommy Bee. Poor Dinkamozzi, what a sight, with his meat pie and his stubby, his once athletic figure now slack and pale and tubby. Each attempt to thwart the palm had ended in defeat. Now all he owned was a pair of shorts and the thongs upon his feet. He'd lost the race, he'd done his dash, but a sporty loser he. Two fingers held in high salute calls, up you, Pommy B. That's that. that you still Oh, you're still there. It's incredibly entertaining, Mike. I love the breadth of uh, topics that you cover, ranging from the cake chips to uh, yeah. <laughs> Dink and Aussie. What a great sense of humour. I imagine in moments of, you know, adversity and inspiration, you've created these beautiful poems. Yeah, well, it went over a while. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there's a couple. I, th- I think altogether there's about, uh, about, I think there's about 30 of them that I wrote at that time, at that period. Um, and that's just, that's two of them. So what are you going to do with them? I, what's a podcast? I, I, I've been asking around. I, you know, my, my technology has gone a little bit beyond, beyond my, it's a bit beyond my scope now. Uh, podcasts, what's a podcast? Before we go into the content of his poems, I just wanted to say that I loved listening to Mike's accent. He's got this lovely transatlantic old movie star type quality to it and it really reminded me of sort of a radio voice from, you know, 50 years ago and it's quite fitting that he didn't know what a podcast was because I think he's (laughs) for it his cadence and and just that accent I was like oh goodness I haven't heard anyone talk like this in such a long time so that was that experience in itself was quite pleasant for me amazing I totally agree it's like he's almost frozen in time from that era and probably you're right does have a career in book readings maybe or as you say radio in this you know niche seafaring way or you know almost like a Morgan Freeman style of uh You can beat the voice. Well, yeah, you know, you're familiar with the transatlantic accent, right? The one, yeah, it's like the one that's taught to movie stars are like the educated folks back in, you know, I think. Give us a, give us an example, Carrie. Can you give us an example? Oh, no, no, you're not, no, (laughs) not doing it on a podcast. But (laughs) maybe you should go back and ask Mike to give you some lessons because that might be a better place for it. (laughs) The transatlantic accent, love it. I loved both of Mike's poems and it sounds like he's got a treasure trove of just other ones that I would love for him to read out but these were his two top favorite ones that we've just heard I think quite different takes on his lighthouse experience from channeling his I guess wonder about lighthouses in the first one into you know his awe 
discomfort and almost anger into the second one about what seems like a bit of workplace workplace bullying but both beautifully captured and written I thought I loved how he channeled his almost frustration with his colleagues into what sounds like a whole series of poems I feel like I would have just expressed that you know in a rant to my friend or written a tweet or an insta post or a story or something or put together I don't know a little diary entry with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, legend, wrote some poems. Yeah, I also, it, the way that, the, I think that poetry can sometimes feel a bit inaccessible to people, like it's something you do in English class when you're in high school mm-hmm. and a lot of people I don't think access poetry or seek it out very much. And I think that the way he writes it and the way it sounds, you know, with Um, rhymes that you're used to and all that sort of stuff it makes it feel very accessible like it's a story that you're listening to and not that you don't have to interpret aspects of it but I think that that's probably why they were taken so well is that you can really clearly understand what he meant and that it's it just tells yeah it tells a good story in a way that some poems require a bit more like cerebral access I think you're right. I think we're so used to fast communication, just get to the point, get to the message, you know, prose type writing, but actually poetry is such a, I guess, underrated form of language and communication that is a way that can more beautifully, I think, express a scene, emotion, a picture, a feeling. And this is quite bad, but the only modern form I've seen poetry in are probably two. One is, you know, there's American movies where they have like poetry readings, like poetry clubs. There seems to be a scene of that in every American movie. Yeah, like slam that poetry. Like slam poetry, that. Or, you know, I imagine there's like poetry competitions you can kind of enter into. But for me, that's like the realm of, you know, nerdy chess debating land. But yeah, I think there is a, yeah, a way to relive these moments in poetry that I think I've underappreciated. Or haiku poems, actually. That's probably the only one I'm used to. Yeah. Rippy Kaor as well. I don't know if that's how you spell her name. Are you familiar with those ones? They're about relationships no. and they're really short. They're, usually, they're just like a few, like a couple of words per oh, line. Oh, read them out? Often. Yeah, I could. I do have it. I think I have one here. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've got her book here, Milk and Honey. I'll just read the one from the back. Just you know, that's just the vibe. It's a little bit more accessible, I guess. This is the journey of surviving through poetry. This is the blood, sweat, tears of 21 years. This is my heart in your hands. This is the hurting, the loving, the breaking, the healing. And I think I, I think she's become a bit of a meme, um, but you don't really hear from young women. And I think it's written in a way that's very honest and some of them are like quite explicitly sexual or just pure, purely rooted in emotions. Not that other poetry isn't, but I found it like I read through this in probably like a couple of hours or something. It's just very like gets to the heart of what you, what many people have felt before. Um, yeah. I see. So from a, from a, an author perspective compared to a reader perspective, why do you think poetry is the choice? this on I think like the the room for interpretation is 
you can, you know, you can read the line and it can have a lot of implications whether or not that's intentional or unintentional. And I think blending it more with, you know, that art form and that sort of musical sometimes element. Like when when Mike was doing his poems, I felt like this is this is real like <laughs> slim dusty, like Australian comforting type method of storytelling and I think there's much more of that that blending of art and slight musical nature to it um that is compelling if you're interested in it that's a beautiful way to put and describe I guess the role of poetry and 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 its alternative and the alternative it provides to our usual prose novels and and it's almost like to me it's almost a midpoint, maybe not quite in the middle, between a novel and a painting, for example. So you know how they say, you know, in a picture is a thousand words, in a poem, as you say, there might not be many words, but there is much more to take out of it. Thank you firstly to Mike Pitcher for sharing his highly entertaining poems and being game enough to go on a podcast when he did not quite know what it was. Thanks, of course, to my co-host, Caroline Ma, our resident artistic consultant. Up next, we chat to Peter Hill about his memoir, Stargazing, Memoirs of a Young Lighthouse Keeper, the time he spent as a 19-year-old at Scottish Lighthouses. Until then... Stick around to listen to Caroline Mark on Picasso and his dark side. As long as you don't make her talk about Picasso, but and again, it would be kind of fun because her Picasso rants are pretty funny. Thank you for listening. Could you could you give us an intro in terms of who is Picasso? What did he do? Picasso. Pablo Picasso, he was a Spanish painter who had quite a long and fruitful career. He also did ceramics and prints and sculptures, but is most known for his paintings. And I think he was revolutionary in that he is accredited for creating aspects of um, art styles like cubism and he was so versatile in the things that he painted and he also had aspects of, you know, surrealism and he was mates with all of the artists of that time and he did do a good job at, you, you do feel things when you look at his paintings, like they are, some of them are just like I've never seen anything like that before and there's some of the ones that I really like from him are there's these cubist paintings of women crying with babies and the way that he's able to capture that is quite unique but it's also just <laughs> to get that painting you shouldn't have to be a source of that misery is, is is my point if I had to introduce him that's how I'd say he, he was he was revolutionary in the sense that he was cons- like credited as being the first to do a lot of things the pioneer tortured pioneer torturing pioneer mm-hmm. by the sounds of it yeah so Karen tell us what you might know about Picasso I think one of the things that's interesting about art and I do think that um Brad in 
the Buckley's episode later on does touch on it a bit. It is such an interesting space because I think the average layperson maybe doesn't know a whole lot about art. It can maybe identify things like Mona Lisa, Starry Night by Van Gogh and a name like Picasso. And I think that one of the things that I find interesting about it is that it can seem very inaccessible, have a lot of trouble with him as a figure because he is so popular and like his name is so strongly associated with art for many people. And I think that he is a very, was a very problematic person, but has created some incredible pieces that, you know, stand the test of time and have affected people in such a positive way. But him as a figure was just mainly a misogynist and a very treated women and the people in his life very badly. And I think it's always interesting to have a person like that on a pedestal, knowing that in the background, their lives and how they affected the people around them was very negative. So I'm going to read you some quotes from him about the relationships that he had with these women, in addition to sort of cheating on them and putting them through psychological and in some cases, physical abuse. He had a very harmful view of what these women what women meant in the world and also to him there's a very famous quote from him that's it's each time I leave a woman I should burn her destroy the woman destroy the past she represents and it's like quite a famous quote and I think that sort of encapsulates a little bit of his attitude and he had these documented long relationships with women as as his muses as a way to he's used them to sort of and their tumultuous relationships to produce these works, but it doesn't really seem worth it to me. And I think that the thing that is easy to, you know, there's this ongoing conversation always about can you separate art and the artist and you get that mm-hmm. with musicians and, you know, you know, movie stars and directors and stuff. But I think for me that a lot of his artworks represent what he, these relationships with women, there are many self, like there are many portraits he's done of these women and, for instance, this um one of his most famous works, which is in um, MoMA in New York. I'm going to butcher the name. It's got this French name. And I think it's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. And it's basically five women. And it's this cubist, you know, incredible oil painting. It's immense. You look at it. But it's these five women that are naked from his experience going to a brothel. And I just find that, like, that looking at that reminds me of what, he's done and like the way he treats people and I find that it's a very complicated thing because I I really enjoy some of the works he's done but I think art as a vessel to relate to human experience and all that is very hard to not tie his past and his relationships with the things that he produces that's my answer for that definitely not the answer I was expecting that Cara but very good points, I think, about the relationship of the artist with their muse and actually the end result. You know, it's 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 that whole argument, like you say, between does the means, uh, sorry, does the ends justify the means to what is produced? And ultimately, I think your view is no, it's not. And that has actually fundamentally changed my mind about Picasso because I actually didn't realise that he did that and that was his modus operandi. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I think many people don't know that um so I think yeah it's worth it's worth considering and whether or not it changes your relationship I think it doesn't 
doesn't have to obstruct you from, I think there's things, pieces like Guernica, which is about, you know, the Spanish revolution and stuff. And I think when you look at that, you don't, you're not necessarily reminded of the things that he did, but it's also, you look into these, you look deeper into this. And again, I don't claim to be an expert at all, but three of his long-term partners died by suicide afterwards and in their entanglements with him as, as well as like some of the family members, um, that were close to him. Anyways, it's just worth thinking about when you consider him and I guess he sounds like an incredibly destructive person who should not be put up on a pedestal, even if he has created, I guess, what we think a beautiful piece of artwork given the background. Another one that's really good is he's he's said before, and again, I haven't like fact checked any of this. It's just things that I've heard. But he's said he once said to one of his mistresses, "Women's um, women are machines for suffering." I think that encapsulates his how he feels. Yeah, and there's this um, other quote from his granddaughter. I think who wrote um, a biography about him, who said you know, regarding his treatment of women, he submitted them to his animal sexuality, tamed them, bewitched them, ingested them, and crushed them onto his canvas. After he had spent many nights extracting their essence, once they were bled dry, he would dispose of them. That is horrendous, but um, I feel passionately about it. Thanks for uncovering Picasso's dark past for us because I think we've maybe been blinded by his fame and fortune, which is so, if you know, if there was another, if there was a Me Too movement back in his day, he would be like the Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. I think I think it's well like if you go if you look into it at all it's pretty well documented this relationship but it's sort of just oh that God. you know you get with the pain type situation which is sort of a myth of how art <laughs> can be created I think but yeah light House. light 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 house light house Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been a long time listener. I really love your work.